Thank you for that musical composition there, the accordionettes, and welcome to the second episode of the Champagne Comedy Podcast, where we talk about the best Australian comedy show from the 90s ever made, The Late Show, and other degenerational comedy tidbits. Uh, my name is Matt, and joining this podcast today is, in alphabetical order, Alison, Daniel, Kim, and Prue. How are you guys? I'm great. Fantastic. And we also have an added extra member today, and that is Tony. Excellent. So, Tony, do you mind if you explain to us a little bit about your background and how you came across The Late Show? Um, my background is I'm a entertainment critic, I guess is the word. <laughs> um, two words. Uh, I review things amongst other things um but as far as the late show is concerned uh i'm not entirely sure how i came about it i was i was trying to think of this before because um i was down in melbourne uh in the early 90s and i remember the DGEM was quite big on radio a lot of people were fans but they were breakfast radio and i was not up for breakfast radio i was a uni student and so was sleeping so i i was aware of the DGEM, but i wasn't a huge fan and then Saturday nights were, and again, I stress, I was a uni student, um, with, with going out and getting drunk. So I wasn't sitting at home watching The Late Show, but somewhere along the line in the first season, word must have got out that it was the show to be watching because I distinctly remember setting the video recorder, taping it, coming home inebriated and watching it and enjoying it quite a lot. And by gosh, a few episodes in, I was taping it every week. And I hung on to some of those tapes. So yeah, even during the 90s, I was re-watching it quite a lot. So short version, big fan. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> You're all like us. Just before we go into this episode, thank you everyone for downloading the first episode, which was in two bits, because we didn't know how long we were actually going to run the first time. We are going to do a bit of house cleaning, which is from episode one, positive feedback from everyone. So a shout out to Mason Hellcat, who runs the Instagram fan account at the late show underscore champagne comedy. He's one of us, really. So he runs that Instagram account sharing all stuff with The Late Show. Also, a shout-out to The Crowject Podcast, which, while they talk about the Adelaide Crows, they also... It's Adelaide Crows, right? I'm not a big AFL fan. It is. Well, uh, is, is it the, the team that doesn't win much? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, it's it's Crows. Yeah, he, <laughs> they throw in a lot of Late Show and Degeneration references into their podcast, so a big shout-out to them. And some feedback, uh, Cameron Davis says hello. He just wanted to drop a line to say thank you for, to everyone involved in making the podcast. Uh, he really enjoyed it and using it as a reason to rewatch his old episodes again. And he looks forward to more episodes and more memories to flood back. So I'm glad that we've hit that bit of the, I think it's hippocampus of the brain. I learned that from Breaking Bad. <laughs> now, the, I sent everyone an email of a screenshot. He wants to point out and uh, that he noticed in Commercial Crime Stoppers in episode one that there was someone that was in one of the ads for the pillow. Now, everyone's got the email in regards to the Commercial Crime Stoppers segment of episode one where he says that there's someone in it that looks like John Doyle slash Roy Slavin. 
So uh-huh. um, ah. that's why I sent the image, yeah. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it's a good look-alike at least. I don't think it's him. He, well, it, it does look like him, but I feel like he's got too hair, too much hair rather, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that was sort of a standard look in the early 90s. I think every too third on drive. <laughs> <laughs> and- no, just that particular hairstyle. It's very yeah. weird. It's swept forward, isn't it? Sort of, yeah. It's like a rectangle in front of his head. Yeah, we'll share yeah. that image on our Twitter page. Also, uh, just some extra notes too with episode one. It turns out that Doncaster is shopping town. Oh, Doncaster so, shopping town. Yeah, or upmarket All shopping right. centre for when, those in the northwest. Yeah, when I can go more than five kilometres from my home, I'm going out there to recreate the poster scene. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I said northwest, <laughs> I meant nor- northeast. So uh, a big thanks to Shannon Gill, Scott McPhee, Felicia Murnane. I apologise if I said your name wrong there. And also Daniel Hopman's Scotty Boy seven four two on Twitter, and also the Channel Nine pilot. This is where we've made the mistake here. The Channel Nine pilot of the Late Late Show on Channel Nine uh, was recorded in nineteen ninety and not nineteen ninety one. So apologies for that, and a big thanks to Scott McPhee who pointed that out. Which uh, yeah, that goes into yeah. the bin for us, isn't it? Excellent. Thank God we were only one year off. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't here for that episode. <laughs> well, there's your excuse, Tony, that's for sure. All right, so. <laughs> that explains why they, they do look a bit younger because they look they look sort of slightly too younger than, you know, for like a, a one-year gap. A two-year gap makes more sense, I think. Yeah, yeah. the hairstyles are totally different. Yeah. 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 And, and also... Prue found the mystery Tony lookalike that you met at the Dick Liquor. Oh, really? Yep. So cool. Peter Phoebe, uh, who said that he may be the gentleman that you were talking about that you had bumped into there. What a memory. Well done. Yep. That's all the throwbacks, really. And thank you very much for downloading. And we only expected a couple of, you know, double digits, but we got a, a bit more than that. <laughs> so, um, okay, I've, I've uh, got uh, just a, a quick correction uh, from last episode as well. Right towards the end of the episode, if you made it that far, uh, we were talking about uh, Duran O'Brien playing like a, uh, a, a kid reporter at the end of uh, a John Houston interview talking about the youth training wage sort of the forerunner of work for the doll pretty much. We didn't really talk much about that. But anyhow, I think we, we mentioned at the time that uh, we thought he might have been playing like a young Kerry O'Brien. But uh, basically at the time of that episode, uh, Kerry O'Brien would have been doing late line, um, whereas it looked like the Houston interview was coming from the 7.30 report, which would have been hosted by somebody else. It was Paul Lynham at the time, wasn't it, on the 7.30 report? Was it Paul Lynham? I'm not sure who it was because at the time the 730 reports would have all been state-based as well. Yeah. The, uh, rather rather the than Mel- one national program. <laughs> yeah, the Melbourne one was Paul Lynham, I think. Well, that would make sense because of the future episode where Rob is. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Yeah. So uh, essentially the, the, the guy's not playing a young Kerry O'Brien. Yeah, Kerry would have been hosting Late Line from Canberra um, at the time of the episode as well. So... It's probably, uh, Duran's probably not the son of Kerry either. Um, now, also, I decided to have a look at the episode of uh, Blue Healers that uh, that Duran O'Brien uh, is in there because you can watch all the Blue Healers on the 7 Plus website. You go to extraordinary legs for us, Daniel. You really do. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Another small errata. And for some reason, on the it was the Australian Television.net website where I found the cast information. Uh, so the episode Duran's in, it says it's episode, uh, season three, episode 38, but on Seven Plus, it's season four, episode 28. <laughs> but anyhow, I, I had a look at the episode uh, and it's set during Halloween. Um, and both Duran and possibly a fellow sibling uh, turn up as Halloween kids doing trick or, trick or treats at uh, Mount Thomas Police Station. Well, I actually got now, a big box set down here in the corner, so I could always drag it out and go through every episode if you want. I'll get it. One sec. <laughs> oh, my God. He's about to do some weightlifting, ladies and gentlemen. I feel like this is a cue for everyone to disclose what their craziest box set is. Josh. Hold on. Here we go. Oh, my, oh my gosh. gosh. How, how many discs, how many like discs that. in that behemoth? 134 discs. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> Thanks to Viavision for that. So <laughs> they... <laughs> And Mad Men, yeah. This is the punchline of the story. Well, there we go. Once once you've gone through all of the late oh. show, you can go through all of the healers there. And we'll have a podcast just dedicated to each episode. We'll see us <laughs> through to the next century. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm busy that day. <laughs> so anyhow, according to the, the credits of the, the Blue Healers episode, um, Duran O'Brien turns up as Halloween Kid 1. So uh, I did see them there, but unfortunately, because it's Halloween, both of the Halloween kids are wearing full face masks. They were ahead of their time. I can't really confirm that it's them, really. So I'm probably sure that it's the same one that played uh, the young 7.30 report, uh, reporter. Champagne uh, comedy podcast regrets the error. <laughs> regrets the time that it's taking to explain exactly what's going on here. <laughs> I'll throw in some Ripo albums as well as uh, prizes. There we go. Oh, my God. Yep, that's thanks to the record market in Scarborough Street in Southport and on the Gold Coast. Don't worry, I paid for all that. Anyway, so that's all done. So if there's anything else to report, we might as well get into episode two, correct? Oh, gosh, I think I'm going to have to interrupt again. Do we want to go through what was on the other channels at the same time? Um, so on Channel 10 uh, was uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and that followed um, episode four of Star Wars earlier in the evening. Is anybody here a Star Wars fan? Maybe. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Not... Would, yeah. would, you have, would you have been conflicted between whether you, you pick Channel 2 or Channel 10, Matt? Oh, Channel 10 would have been <laughs> my favourite at the time. Actually, no, because it would have been Channel 9, as you know, I am a Hey Hey fan. And, yeah, I would have been watching that all the way up until ABC, and I'll put up with Birds of a Feather as well. <laughs> oh, but it was Smith and Jones. Oh, no, Smith and Jones, yes. There we go. See, yeah. I wasn't an early adopter. Yes, 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 it was. I'll, I'll get to that in, in just a sec. Um, on Channel 9 uh, was the final episode of the US miniseries Scruples, uh, starring Lindsay Wagner, Barry Bostwick, and Connie Stevens. Oh, yeah, that's show. Um, yeah. I've got no idea. No, I've got no idea. (laughs) I was being sarcastic there. Um, On SBS was the 1974 Australian film uh, The Cars That Ate Paris. Oh, that that every three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, that is a weird film. It's sort of, you can see what they're getting at, but it doesn't quite work anyway. Maybe watch it if you're 
I don't know. It, it's it's a special interest, I would say, that film. On Channel 7 uh, was the last of uh, AFL football, uh, Adelaide versus Fitzroy. Now, spoiler alert, uh, Crows won uh, by 85 points. In that AFL match, as far as I can tell, there are three things you don't see anymore because um, <laughs> um, there's no more Fitzroy Lions. It's now Brisbane. Uh, there's no more. Uh, it was played at Football Park, which uh, has been demolished. And um, something you certainly don't see these days, um, the Crows winning a football match by 85 points. <laughs> Roasted. So that's, that's, that's the second Crows game I've managed to sneak into this episode. <laughs> the, the Crows, to be fair, were very, very good in the early 90s. I, they just won everything. And it was, it was all down to Tony yeah. Modra, wasn't it? Yeah, Tony- my grandma mm-hmm. loved Tony Modra. Oh. Tony Modra, I think, I think was on the front page of the Adelaide Advertiser every Monday morning because he was Godra, they called him. Anyway. They did, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, just uh, last of all, on Channel 2, uh, yeah, the, the lead into the late show was Smith & Jones. Um, now, in the listing that's in the Age on Saturdays, uh, there's all of these little like, reviews snuck into the listings by Ross Warnicke. So um, he says to Smith & Jones, that uh, Smith & Jones has occasional bad taste brackets. Last week, references to a hospice for diseased lesbians were rather sick, close brackets, but generally tolerable. <laughs> so I've, I've got no... It makes me want to try and seek out this uh, sketch on YouTube now, try and work out what the Jones hell... Was a, was a good program, as I remember. Um, you know, Do you, you the- remember the sketch with the hospice for diseased lesbians? I, I don't remember that specific sketch, but, but you know, <laughs> being, having a certain awareness of what Ross Warnicke thinks of different comedies, I can imagine that the entire program wouldn't really be to his taste because I get the sense he's not really that into comedy at all. See, I've, I've grown to love Ross Warnicke over the years now that I've taken on the kind of career that he once had. I Really, it's a tough job. Oh, no. And while he was a man with of limited rudimentary taste, at least he made the effort. There's a lot of TV critics that followed Ross that would have just dismissed, they wouldn't have bothered with the Les Smiths and Jones. They would have just wiped, wiped it from their memories rather than, you know, making the attempt to engage. And though I don't agree with any of Ross's opinions that I recall from the past, at least he had them. Yeah, well, <laughs> he, he certainly had a, a lot of them uh, for the first episode. We might get to that a bit later. Controversial um, or well, any yeah. feedback that we get, we're going to call it a Warnicky. <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> After the late show, if you were uh, missing Aspel and Company last week, uh, it's uh, it was on After the Late Show uh, with uh, Michael Aspel talking to actor Warren Beatty. Yeah. I know. I can't believe they buried that at eleven p.m. What a shocker. It, it was a repeat, surely. Uh, it doesn't say it here. Yarn? Warren Beatty was definitely going down, not going downhill, but he'd passed his career high point by the early 90s. Unless they were, you know, promoting yeah. Dick Tracy. It's He's not the well, man Dick, he was. Dick Tracy was 1990, which is what, what makes me think that this is a repeat, because presumably he would have been in London to promote Dick Tracy in 1990. Well, so, yeah, quite, quite possibly. I'm sure IMDB can tell us when he was on there. In fact, maybe I'll just scoot over there now. Uh, well, there was always a lot of research lag in us getting shows. Yeah, there was because there will be certain British shows that we would see 
and then they'll make a very very dated reference. It's like that was like six well, months ago the, or something. There was the lag with movies as well. So for all we know, I don't know off the top of my head, Dick Tracy may not have got here until nineteen ninety one or. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was 1990 because that's when I saw it. But I think uh, I think it was too. Just judging by the the Madonna album that accompanied it. Okay, so Warren Beatty was actually on Aspel and Company in 1992, according to B. Um, so yeah, episode nine. Maybe maybe this might have been. Um, uh, at a time when he had nothing to plug. But there was a time long, long ago when people would go on interview shows and not plug anything. Yeah. Aspel and Company would just get people on because they were interesting. It, it was less about promotion. So the, the air date of this in the UK was the 21st of March, 92. Oh, here we go. So- you might have been plugging Bugsy. Oh, yeah. It was part of the Golden Globe uh, or Globe, Golden Globe nominated or one, something like that. But 1992, Bugsy came out. Right. That oil was a five-year delay to promote Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs> it could very well have just been that he was out squiring Madonna, as it were. He was sort of around then because he was going out with Madonna. Like... <laughs> Sort of like here's Madonna and her elderly boyfriend, and us <laughs> young folk would scratch our heads and go, "Who is this guy?" And then, as the years wore on, it became a bit more obvious. My memory, though, of of Warren Beatty and, and Madonna was that they they sort of dated basically as as a Dick Tracy publicity stunt. And the oh yeah, no, it was totally. <laughs> it it didn't. Movie. It didn't last very long. That relationship, as I recall. No, because supposedly. In and I probably got my memories wrong, but in the documentary in bed with Madonna, doesn't she like dismiss him at some point? Quite obviously. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, just getting back to Aspel and Co. I I think I might be. Someone can correct me on this if they think I'm wrong, but I think it was kind of rushed over to Australia and and broadcast fairly quickly after it went out in the UK because it was often quite topical because it would be about films that were coming out or, or whatever. So so may, maybe it is the 92. It, it must be. That that would sort of make sense. Although why it's being aired after The Late Show, I don't know. That seems an odd time slot. The, 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 the only thing I can think what of it? is that um, it, it might have to do with the Rage uh, uh, special afterwards uh, at 11.40, which uh, is all to do with Kiss. Maybe Kiss was too edgy right. for 11, but not edgy enough for 11.40. But, I mean, Rage would, would normally start about midnight, wouldn't it? Um, no, Rage moved hmm. around a bit. I think Rage seemed to be more mainstream in the 90s. I dimly recall it would start a bit earlier, like not post-midnight, but... Maybe it's because I was young and staying up late. Well, we've got no running sheet here, ladies and gentlemen, so uh, we're just making this up as we go along. <laughs> um, so Ross Warnicke had quite a long column in the next Green Guide after episode one, uh, mostly talking about maybe reading a good book rather than watching the Olympics, but uh, he, he took time out from that to talk about that even the new ABC offerings uh, didn't have much going for them. So this is uh, part of his review. Mel Smith and Griff Reese jones are back. As outrageous as ever, but the D-Generation's new live D-Gen The Late Show following the Brits at 10pm is a disappointment. There were signs of hope in last weekend's premiere, the skits on presidential hopeful Bill Clinton, 
and the posers who have emerged in recent weeks to claim long and lasting friendships with the late Brett Whiteley were hilarious. But otherwise, DGEN The Late Show had about it the feel of a poorly resourced undergrad review. Scripts desperately in need of pruning, cheap shots at predictable targets, Prince Charles and the Pope, and a tendency to confuse irreverence with offensiveness, as in the joke about last week's horrible incident in which a pony's head was nailed to the door of a Melbourne nightclub. Pity, because TV needs a vibrant live show late on Saturday. Dear Gen The Late Show, at least in its present form, lacks vitality. Hey guys, this isn't radio. And there is no variety, just skit after skit after skit. The show needs music guests and some feeling of it really being Saturday night. Last week's show could have been recorded on Thursday morning. In the meantime, how about a good book? Unquote. So I remember that review as being much harsher than what you've just read out. At the time, I remember it being quite sort of, I wouldn't say scandalous, but people were sort of appalled that he was taking this massive swing. But from what you've just read out, I'd kind of go, yeah, you know, I don't agree, but he could have gone harder. Yeah, I think I think a lot of what he says in that actually I, I would agree with. I mean, it it does have the feel of a poorly resourced undergraduate review because it because they make a lot of there's a lot of technical errors in the first show and they make mistakes. So I think I think that's reasonable. And and they do improve a lot in, in episode two, which we'll get to shortly. Um the other the other point I think is really interesting is where he talks about needing a bit of like music and variety. And it, and it's interesting because they actually take that on board in the sense that they have those toilet breaks, you know, which come to the show later. So you do get a bit more variety away from just skit, skit, skit. I kind of feel that Ross was really wanting the big gig again, essentially. Yes, it's it's a very old fashioned view of variety. It's like, you know. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Once you want musical guests, the next is why don't we have Daryl Summers up the front interviewing a few stars and then get onto the magic tricks? I mean, <laughs> that's what's so deeply yeah. annoying about that review is that he's given it all of you know one episode and he's just aimed fire, and it's just like so irritating, and particularly because there wasn't. I mean, first of all, he ended up being famously wrong as, you know, who needs a critic in that review when the show ended up being amazing? And we're still talking about it only 30 years later. But it, it, there were so few examples of that kind of show on Australian television made by Australians, you know, that was really punching above its weight, went for a bloody hour, which is epic. And, you know, and he just slapped it down. He could have just put in a few more choice words to be a bit more, we'll see, or, you know, this bit was great. And, yeah, I'm really oh, angry about it. Do you it. think it was telling that um, that, that uh, Ross was a fan of the Who Knew Brett Best sketch? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know I love that one. <laughs> Good idea, Ross. <laughs> I mean, I think I think what that shows really is that that Ross Warnicky, as Tony said before, is is over a lot of things. You know, he... He writes about sport, he writes about arts programs, he writes about comedy, drama, documentaries, he, lifestyle programs. He, he's writing about everything. So he, he is sort of across it all. So it, it just shows that he's literate in the form of television, I think. I think this is a harsh review, but but I also think he, as, you know, it's an it's an out-of-date attitude as to what comedy variety is. And and actually, you know, there are problems with the first episode of The Late Show, and it gets better over time and it becomes you know what it what it's going to be 
but if you're reviewing the first episode you don't know what it's going to be so this, this is a reasonable reaction to to one episode of the program but also his his attitude is quite old-fashioned he he basically wants the two Ronnies, which, you know, pauses the sketches so, so they can have some kind of sad <laughs> variety act on. You know, it's, yeah, it's it's an old-fashioned point of view and, and they're coming at, at it from a younger, fresher angle and he just doesn't get that yet. Yeah, it's, it's very much the kind of review you expect. A show like The Late Show, which was sort of looking forward and established a new sort of trends and era in Australian comedy in a way, this is the review you expect to get from a show that is actually out there breaking new ground and doing new things. If he'd been on, if the critics had been on board, it probably would have been nice for, you know, the DGEN for a couple of weeks to get some glowing reviews, but it probably would have been a bad sign that they weren't making the kind of show that they should have been making. Oh, a bad review is a good sign. Well, for this yeah, kind this of thing, you want to be ahead of the reviewers. You want the reviewers to be sort of struggling and saying, well, you know, hey, hey, it's Saturday, it's set the benchmark, why isn't it? doing that and you want to be the show that goes no that was five ten years ago this is what people want now yeah hey daniel did he give it a star rating no no no, no he, he didn't like it's it's sort of just a regular column that he would do about well about everything in tv really the only sort of overall sentiment uh, is uh, back on his uh, critical look on saturday where he puts next to the listening for the late show um, plenty of room for improvement after last week's premiere. Because the only thing better than a five-star review is a one-star review. That yes. you can take to the bank. That's gold. <laughs> I feel like that's that's a dangerous thing to say when we're looking for reviews for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five-star reviews, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had some one-star reviews and they're not fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, <but> they're funny. <laughs> On that note, we'll get straight into uh, episode two of The Late Show, if you wish to discuss it. Yay! <laughs> episode two, July 25, 1992. And so the opening is the super, or the... Uh, graphic display of what's coming up coming up on the abc tv no road to barcelona and it's all about the rejected athletes yeah yeah i like this yeah. one i like the, wet towels the wet towels yeah <laughs> that's a recurring theme in some of their skits not so sure about the dwarf throwing <laughs> i know it was like opened with a pretty dodgy gag that was <laughs> at least a little bit like shit scared you could tell that it was a dummy being thrown yeah all right. Okay. It <laughs> wasn't really much of that one, was it? Yeah. It was just pretty straightforward visual jokes of uh, Mick shooting a, a street sign or a kangaroo on the street sign, flicking wet towels, and yeah, that how it wasn't an official event. So after the opening credits, which we saw some snippets of episode one inside that, as mixed in with the, I guess, the pilot, unseen pilot episode, we have Mick and Tony opening uh, up the show by talking about uh, really? the of the Gulf War. Number two. And, and Mick's stylish outfit, which I think he, he rapidly sort of phased out the attempt to look sort of early 90s spiff and went back to flannelette shirts. That is a weird jacket. I can't remember. What was he wearing? Oh, it's, yeah, he's wearing, wearing a jacket. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like a... It's a weird bone jacket with yeah. vertical pockets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And he had a skivvy as well. <laughs> a skivvy, yeah. Oh, they all love their skivvies. Yeah. Yeah, Mick was. Uh, I'm just having a, a, a quick look at the, the screenshot here. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a tan jacket with a yeah a black skivvy. 
You'll see a lot of skivvies, especially in season one. I don't remember skivvies being a thing in Melbourne anywhere outside of the late show. <laughs> yeah, they didn't get enough. Yeah, yeah and it's Running too soon for skivvies are back. So, you know. I remember you used to be able to buy skivvies at Safeway for like $3 because we would put them under our school uniform in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that they're all wearing Safeway skivvies. <laughs> <laughs> that that maybe shows you how much of a wardrobe budget they had. Yeah, I guess not much has changed. That's probably <laughs> high fashion now <laughs> compared to the budget. Well, it's very much a very much a sort of Melbourne in winter look. I mean, looking at what they were wearing, it was like that's what poverty-stricken university students were dressing like that then. They really do sort of <laughs> have that student review look in that they haven't, you know, gone that's and so wardrobe. <laughs> Don't you remember that anecdote from Tony Martin when he was um, saying, oh, who was it? Someone got in his car and looked around and in the back seat there were all these brand new shirts in packets because he just bought all these shirts so he looked different on every monologue. I think this was before he realised <laughs> the, the wardrobe department could maybe dress him. I'm not sure. <laughs> it, it's really interesting watching this um, this stand-up segment from from Tony and Mick in this episode because you know compared to the previous week it's a lot longer you know they seem to do about a minute in episode one and and in this one they go on for several minutes and by the end of the series they're doing about five minutes up front but there's some nice gags in this one um Stallman Norman Schwarzkopf went back to his job as a stallman which um made me laugh quite a lot and and there's a reference to um you know Steve Bizard and, and they say and we won't be crossing to see Vizard in Barcelona. And there's, there's quite a good reaction to that. And, and this is actually a reference to um, a special which Steve Vizard did of, of Tonight Live called Steve Vizard in Barcelona. And if you go over to Wikipedia, you can see a bit about this. It says, um, Vizard's crew surprised him by arranging for him to fight a ball. Vizard dressed in a matador outfit, which had been rented from the state opera's production of Carmen and which was bright red. The bull took one look at Vizard and attacked him and Vizard ran. Now, you know, if anyone's got the footage of that, do send it through because <laughs> I'm sure it's quite amusing. Yeah, and I did get a, a big round of applause when you, when they all mentioned that they wouldn't be crossing over to Steve. Yeah, the audience seemed to love that. They did uh, uh, cross to, um, yeah, the exclusive opening ceremony footage. Yeah, the Piss Week version. Yeah. Oh, There's God, some brilliant, great, brilliant early 90s Melbourne winter fashion in that as well. Yeah. <laughs> This is a really interesting sketch because it, um, I think it really uh, sets the tone for the whole series because one of the key words I wrote down was daggy, right? There's, <laughs> yeah. there's so much daggy in this episode, which is stuff that they did all through like the DGEN TV series. There was, you know, the daggy disco and then on the radio they Dag had a really, quiz. yeah, they had regular dag quiz and stuff. And this is really daggy and it's, it's really rough and unpolished and, like I said, not, nothing is like it on TV. And, <laughs> you know, it's the whole thing is so piss weak and obviously they went on to do piss weak well, but I think this is a really great start to that whole piss weak genre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, as Prue said, it's, it really sums up their aesthetic and, like, their approach to comedy is really just let's do things really pissy. I mean, I remember when Frontline started, there was a lot of people who were really kind of puzzled because the Late Show guys were doing a show seriously. This was like a proper show. 
Whereas everything they'd done before then had been them taking the piss to some extent out of themselves as well as whatever they were, you know, making fun of. And to have them suddenly do a show that you were meant to take at face value. It wasn't them, you know, the sets weren't going to fall over or Rob's wig wasn't going to fall off. It was really quite quite jarring initially just because there'd been 10 years or so of them going, you know, we're filming this in our backyard. We're wandering the streets, knocking on shops, you know, that, that whole approach, just throwing stuff together, but being daggy. Mm. They had some similarities. They, they, they really embraced that uh, that dagginess. Yes. Uh, although I'm, I'm also reminded of the Tommy Cravat Jr. sketches uh, in the the degeneration as well for that sort of level of piss weak dagginess, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah that's just... very much the pilot for piss weak world, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say there were some similarities to Frontline in that you know you had Santo behind the camera just doing that handheld feel where it's just a bit unpolished and you don't have those. You know, the sets that you have that you see in the, those high, um, high budget um, shows. So it was you had that kind of that kind of unpolished feel in Frontline as well when you had Santo behind that cameras, which I think was um, one of the first types of shows oh. where we got that kind of aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. But a big shout out to um, Jane's dog in this sketch because she <laughs> it was really <laughs> funny the way. <laughs> and then I can't believe they introduced chickens. Like, <laughs> did they separate the chickens and the dog? Like... <laughs> they had the chickens in, in like sort of boxes, didn't they? So they'd obviously rented the chickens for the afternoon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or bought them down the market. Uh, again, pointing to the, the credits at the end of the episode, Michael Hirsch is listed as chicken wrangler. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were his chickens. But the other line I like uh, that's um, from that is... Um, put out there by Tony Martin uh, saying, we do not condone bullfighting unless there's a couple of ratings points in it. <laughs> well, again, is that, is that a, a reference Steve, Steve, <laughs> Steve reference? Yeah. Oh, yes. I hadn't thought of that until you mentioned, yeah, um, yeah until you mentioned Vizard in Barcelona. Yeah. Mm. Well, straight after the opening was the news desk with Tommy G. And he introduced a few stories such as Bosnia, War, Olympics, and uh, his odd, you know, splicing in of, really random footage but a few jokes fell very flat on this that's for sure bit bit awkward to watch yeah yeah it is a bit awkward that i don't know if anyone spotted this but um there's a bit of footage of saddam hussein shaking hands with a load of kids and it reminded me an awful lot of that famous last footage of hitler where he shakes hands with all the all the um little hitler youth soldiers yeah uh, but anyway, the end of you know you're nazis <laughs> <laughs> the end of that bit where they spliced in someone doing like a three stooges kind of kind of i don't know how to explain it verbally but that was actually really funny because originally i thought oh this is gonna be some dodgy you know misogynist thing that i don't know how i'm gonna feel about it now but it, it just was a three stooges gag and i was like oh thank god you know yeah yeah <laughs> It's just, it's just silly. That's there's yeah. nothing else to it, really. Yeah. Do you know, uh, early early nineties Australian comedy is, is just cram full of references to Bill Kelty, and and every single one of the references his his crazy curly hair. <laughs> um, I, I have to say that to this day, I don't really know who Bill Kelty is apart from he was leader of the ACTU. But um, yeah, it's it's the curly hair is the only thing I know about him. I wasn't sure if it was Bill Kelty or Brett Whiteley. <laughs> Probably the same wig. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After the Bill Kelty bit was a quick story about Daryl Braithwaite in court fighting his managers and Rock brings out his five more in the row. Always gold. <laughs> yeah, that was. They didn't give that enough airtime. It was like a two-second bit of Rob in this witness stand doing his mic thing, and I'm like, the setup required for that. He's gone to ma- hair and makeup for ages, and then it's just on for like three seconds, <laughs> and and it kind of dies as well. Yeah, not a strong punchline. We have the Western Australian man who's selling his kidney. Santo releases the whole commercial about it. They're all about livers, heart, and everything else. <laughs> this was a pretty funny performance by Santo, and he really went for it. Like, it was really gross, like, pulling all these, like, bloody organs out of his dressing gown. I was just like, Ugh. Again, another fun day for the props man there. Yeah. <laughs> but just going back to um, the audience being flat, I think it's probably worth saying right at the top, and this adds to my... Um, studio audience wild conspiracy theory but they were shit they didn't give this show anything they didn't laugh at anything they were flat as a tack and at the end of watching this whole episode I just felt really down and the audience just was not generous and I feel like that has to be said before we mention it another 28 times that nobody was laughing (laughs) it's so annoying how would they have recruited that audience so early in the show would that in the series, I mean, would that have been an audience that had knew they were coming for the late show? Well, well they had, was that? They had the recruitment out. thing at the end of the last episode, didn't they? They they had Tony Martin and um and his grandmother sort of hawking the tickets. So we we assumed that that they were people who had seen the show and wanted to come. Well, I mean, that's part of my conspiracy theory is that maybe they, you know, maybe they just took what they could get. Um, and then realised that it wasn't helping the show. Like they needed maybe friends and family or I don't know, whoever, to sort of boost it a bit more. Although I think we'll find out as we rewatch them whether or not that's true because it was probably real. They did do a call out. But as you know, I, I have no faith in there ever being any tickets available by 1993. There just wasn't. <laughs> the next part was Lisa Curry-Kenny. Do you have your image, Kim? Oh, yes, yes. Lisa Curry-Kenny, she was obviously on the Olympic swimming team, which was a bit of a disaster for the swimming meet, um, apart from Kieran Perkins, which I remember staying up at about 3am to watch. Um, But apart from him, no one else got any gold medals and she failed to qualify for the 100-metre butterfly. Um, But, yeah, this skit was quite amusing because I think she'd had a couple of kids by then and, and there, there she was. Um, we actually stood up that visual gag there of her actually um, expecting some another baby, um, and the multiple references to Muesli because she was an ambassador for Uncle Toby's quite famously, um, and apparently she's now married to an Elvis impersonator. Is that right? <laughs> wow! Unexpected <laughs> fact. So, yes, but. Um, Yes, this is my 1992 new idea that I'm holding up now and there's a little bit about the opening ceremony there and there's a photograph of the um, swimming team there with uh, Lisa mm. Curry-Kenny at the far right of that image, yes. which we can put on our Twitter if anyone's interested. Um, and there's also some bits cut out of there because, um, long story, but 
Kathy Watt, um, when she, there's a picture of her, I cut her head off and stuck it in on my folder and put my head on. So I was actually a gold medal winner on my folder, <laughs> which was basically why I cut this magazine up. And I don't know why I kept it for all this time, but uh, it's come in handy. <laughs> Lead into the, straight after the news desk was a uh, classic DJ commercial piss take really of Daihatsu in other words Daishitsu yeah this is funny my favourite line from it was my god it's actually started (laughs) (laughs) see I had a car like this in the in the late 90s and and it just it was it basically was exactly the same you could never get it started whether it was really hot weather or really cold weather or, or any weather really and it was you know manual and and it was and it was old and and it it, it dripped out the back and you know it, was, it just reminds me of my first car that that ad basically oh, totally I had a 1963 Hillman Minx and it broke down in a new way every week until I finally <laughs> like I love this sketch because it reminds me that in the 90s when we finally got a car they were shit cars like they yeah. should, we shouldn't have been young people driving around in death traps <laughs> yeah yeah, I think I mentioned last week my first car was a Daihatsu Charade, but it was a 1991 model, so not like that was a hatchback. But it was so flimsy that the bonnet, I remember it, it just bent just with your hands. You could just actually bend <laughs> with your hands. Wow. That's how, that's how flimsy it was. But it actually served me quite well, um, to be fair to it. it. It lasted right until about um, 2011. But, um, well, yeah, that's so. good. Mine was a VP Commodore 1992, which ran to the ground, got up to about 250,000K, and then it died on the way on Milpera Road back home, where like a $10 bit of tubing inside the engine exploded and nearly caught on fire. In peak oh, hour. Wow. Hey. <laughs> oh, I love a car on fire story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so We obviously got out, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we had that. Well, the, the Daishitsu with parallel steering, V3 engine, AM radio, super responsive, long-range antenna, which was a coat hanger. Shaped like Australia, <laughs> of course. Yes. Imitation vinyl seats, partially carpeted floors, one-wheel suspension, optional braking system, volitionary controls, exhaust pumped back into the car, and it needs jumper leads to start. So that sounds like an everyday car today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what we've got next is Rob... And Mick coming together to talk about the Olympic Village design, which was made out of, or Mick's original plan was, it was made out of milk cartons and Milo tins. The missing Milo tin because uh, there was still only, there was still a little bit left in the the can. (laughs) Here's the thing which I found very interesting about this one where the, the reference where they were going on about Jimmy Hannon yeah, is all Club t- Yarrawonga. Oh, Club- obscure reference. Yeah, no, what, tell what us about it? Club Yarrawonga. All right, now, if you subscribe to this podcast, I released a little teaser during the week. It was just the tiniest little grab. Now, what it was, it was a snippet of Jimmy Hannon's Club Yarrawonga commercial, and I've got it right here. What you'll love about these condominiums here at Club Yarrawonga is that it's all here. 
All you need are your clothes. The units are complete with everything you'll need. There's glassware, crockery, cutlery, kitchen appliances, linen, towels, electric blankets and doonas. If you have questions you'd like answered about Club Yarrawonga or timesharing, arrange to get those answers by calling Melbourne 329 now. We can arrange a cost-free overnight stay or a day visit. Get the facts on beautiful Club Yarrawonga. Now, when he was doing the tour of the whole facility, it looked like something that was from the 70s. The day call was so <laughs> tacky. It was gorgeous. It looked like it had been all rubbed down with gumption. So that's what Rob <laughs> was going on about with everything with Club Yarrawonga. It was all Jimmy Hannon being the face of Club Yarrawonga with these commercials from the 80s and the early 90s. Yeah, nice. their obsession with Jimmy Hannon is uh, like a bit of a yoke around their neck, I reckon. Like this gag bombed, in, obviously, the audience again didn't really respond. But again, like in the second year when they brought Jimmy Hannon on as a musical act that also was one of the most unpopular musical acts so I really don't enjoy their Jimmy Hannon references. Basically they went a bit too daggy <laughs> yeah. in this instance like re- re- reel it back a decade or so. Maybe we just didn't appreciate it because we were young people at the time. It's really yeah. interesting that they're putting this sketch in which is which is very much a Melbourne joke you know about something that those of us living in other states have got absolutely no idea about. Oh, don't know, worry. I have no idea either. I have no idea where <laughs> yeah, you're Yeah, okay, going. fine. Okay, so no one knew what it was about. <laughs> Great. Well, it's in Victoria, that's for sure. Yep. Hold on. Mm. Quick Google map. And it's down the road from Bundalong. Where's Bundalong? <laughs> Where's Hilarious. Bundalong? <laughs> It's along the New South Wales Queensland borderline. It's uh, probably a couple of hours drive from Albury. Oh, okay. So nowhere near Cobram. It's directly on the borderline because it shares a bit of water. Yarrawonga Regional Park, and uh, the oh, it's along the Murray River. And okay, Lake Mulwalla. I don't know. I am not a local. So is the timeshare scheme still running today? Yeah, it is. So oh if, you, if you look it up, it's a golf club resort in, in Mullawalla um, in, in New South Wales. And, um, yeah, so I guess if you're into golf, pop down there <laughs> on the Murray River. That's all, that's all I can tell, really, from this website. But, yeah, Yarrawonga Mulwalla Golf Club Resort. If you are looking for one of the finest golf resorts in New South Wales or Victoria, you must consider the three courses at Yarrawonga Malwala Golf Club Resort. I just found this whole... Mention promo code SHITSCARE <laughs> yeah, for a discount. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them we sent you. Sorry, it, just, it's a, it's, it sounded too much like an ad there. Yeah. I just found this whole sketch really wobbly. I mean, I guess yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to do this sort of material live. And... Uh, you know, and the mm. other thing was that ridiculous, like Iron Man style architectural model that's like, you know, I don't know, it's a huge thing, like a dining table. It was just very kind of, ooh, a bit cringy. With 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 all, all of these packets of things on top looking like the Curiosity yeah. Show. Hey, don't knock the Curiosity Show. <laughs> no, oh, no, I'm not I'm, I'm not knocking it. I mean that's that's simply yeah, daggy. Yeah, and made in Adelaide, just just to remind you. There's 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 heaps of it officially on YouTube. Go and have a look at it. Yeah, I think there's a whole new generation of Curiosity Show fans now, isn't there? 
thanks to YouTube. Yeah, definitely. So after the really dodgy Olympic village design that Mick tried to put together, now uh, Jason presents the anniversary of the landing on the moon, which has Santo playing Michael Collins, who sat in the module on the moon, couldn't go outside or anything, while he spoke to Neil and Buzz while they walked across the moon. Now, yeah. that one was a very... Uh, I think it really missed the mark. It should have been a really short bit, but I guess it was just filling in time. Oh, really? This is one of my favourite things that Santo does, actually. I think it's really... Like, you very rarely see Santo get cranky or petulant like this. <laughs> and he really... And he just dives right into it. And I also love that it's... um quite innovative like it's just to in order to create the the um space module they've just gone sideways on the tv gallery panel <laughs> so it's just this amazing sort of innovation mm. yeah <laughs> just yeah just have just have santo basically sort of lean his head at an odd angle into yeah. the um yeah into the tv tv yeah, it was it's, it was actually quite true to life because he he didn't get to see them on the moon because, um, yeah, he was the only ride home for them, so he couldn't actually see um, Buzz and Neil on the moon. But actually, um, when I was reading into it, um, it seems that there were no TV cameras in his little um, console either, so he couldn't even see the landing himself. So he really, he really was in the dark, and it took him a couple of hours to orbit the moon as well. So there was a time where he could see nothing but blackness when he was on the other side of the moon, and just then he, then he went around and saw them. And there was also one bit in this book I'm reading about Neil Armstrong where they're looking out at the earth as they go towards the moon and there's a little, there's a very small window. So Neil and Buzz are looking through and they can see all the clouds and the wonderful weather and it's um, suddenly Mike's turn to sit at the window and all he can see is the ocean. And he's like, hmm, <laughs> is, is, can the earth turn around a bit faster so I can see some of the land? And he's like, hmm, nah. <laughs> you don't have any time. So, yeah, poor Mike. And the, the other thing with this... Uh sketches that uh, there's no attempt at all to do American accents by anybody in this sketch. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? That they wouldn't even try and do American accents. <laughs> it is bizarre. I suppose they don't have to go for realism as long as they make it funny, really. Well, they did put in a Thunderbirds joke with it, too. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if you want <laughs> to be more obscure, a Blunderbirds joke. Now, you know, you DJ, that's really, really awesome. <laughs> so after that was Tom and Jane coming back for Countdown Classics, covering the episode of April 1977, which was actually April 3rd. And I happen to have the 100th episode of Countdown as well. So I watched it as well. It was pretty bad. And <laughs> it really didn't have to describe too much because all of that was pretty much legit how Molly was... No, so he suddenly vanished, and <laughs> and and was and was tired and emotional, uh, yeah. as the euphemism goes. Well, if you watched the Molly TV series, the miniseries that they held with uh, Samuel Johnson, they did cover that as well, where he, he was running late and he was really jet lagged, and apparently someone had given him something to perk him up, which didn't really work. So, <laughs> yeah, I uh, hold on. What, what's the translation here? Uh, well. Favourite lines were, now listen, now listen, now listen. <laughs> as well as the makeup lady fixing him up saying, 
I'm welcome, Ian. I'll tell you what, I'm very welcome, You're Ian. Very welcome, Ian. Because I like that it makes it all together. Yeah. And I, I do I, I do love um, uh, Tommy basically just stopping everything and just sort of pausing on that, that moment. Um, yeah, let's and, analyze yeah. that last exchange. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, my friend at Kaneo and I used to actually recreate that, that scene as well. <laughs> we used to say, I'm very welcome, Ian. There's a bit of a running joke. I love that this... Um, it gets the first real sort of laughs from what well, from me from when I was watching it but also I noticed the audience really got into it and I think we underestimate how much Countdown Classics was just really found footage at the time like it, it wasn't until later that Rage would repeat episodes of Countdown or that you know Molly got celebrated or they'd celebrate Countdown in some way but like in the early 90s, you hadn't seen these episodes since they went out. So it was really like, oh, what are they doing, you know? Yeah, it was very much, I remember at the time, classics and commercial crime stoppers, I think, that really grabbed people right from the start. Just the, nobody else was doing that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. And it was April 1977, so it would have been 15 years ago, and we're talking about something now that was more than twice (laughs) as long ago. And that's a bit weird. <laughs> it seemed like it was such a long time ago. It was just the idea back then that TV came and went. Just People just didn't drag up old shows because old shows, you know, were in the past. I think the DGEN were really sort of, in a way, ahead of the curve and saying, no, look, this old stuff has still got some value. We can still go back and get some laughs out of it. And now most of our culture is built around mm. that kind of yeah. thing. yeah. You're right, because they, they, they do that, especially with the, yeah. the shows that they've overdubbed. So, yeah, Olden Days and Barjars and uh, Commercial Crime Stoppers is sort of another example of uh, repurposing, remixing, you might want to say, commenting on things. But you're right, Tony. It's, it, it, it is pretty much ahead of its time. I think that was, again, one of the things that reviewers and that at the time didn't really get was that this was a show that was, you know, they were daggy. They were purposefully sort of doing things low rent they weren't trying to make a quality what was called then a quality show and they were quite happy to go back and rummage through television's past and see what they could you know make out of it which really wasn't an approach that you had people weren't doing that stuff especially not on Australian television Mm. and it really paid off for them too because that was one of the things that really I suppose won everybody's heart because they were sort of celebrating this old daggy bad TV that we all watched in the 70s and those people ended up sort of being a part of the show. Well, not everyone, but a lot of people did come into the second series quite happily because of that kind of lovable, you know, sort of celebration. Yeah, and it it really worked for them, I think, as well because watching the shows as a whole, like some of the news desk comedy and that can be quite harsh. They, you know, they would go for jokes. You know, they were paying out on Steve Weizard every single week. (laughs) You know, they weren't respectful necessarily of Australian showbiz, but because they showed that they, you know, what they liked, they really liked, people could see that they weren't just being mean for the sake of it. They were making jokes about stuff that they liked and then they were making jokes about stuff they didn't like. And it's sort of, you needed both sides of those to make them seem like people you could laugh with, I think. Straight after the Countdown Classics was a 
postcard from the science show and this time it's presented by rob who really looked in his element here where he went to the science show which was held at the world trade center in the melbourne docklands and he looked thrilled (laughs) i love this it's like isn't it interesting to see how how little the virtual reality headset has moved on i know (laughs) i have to comment about that it's like VR is became all the rage, you know, what, six years ago or something again. And I'm like, but weren't you there in the 90s with Lawnmower Man and all these shit displays of VR? We don't have to go through that again, do we? Uh, not very much. No. <laughs> I feel like they just keep bringing back VR and it never really takes off. I did appreciate the joke about, what was it, Sri Lankan cricket or something, which... I'm guessing was extremely topical. Yeah. I can't remember it. What, what did he say? Episode, we talked about this last episode. The basic joke is that the Sri Lankan cricket team were, were shit, and, and they were in that. I mean, if all they had to offer was Georgie Parker world, then you can understand why. <laughs> Sale of the Century world, that's another thing. That was, that was, that was okay. I mean... <laughs> I also love the bit where he goes, you've just unlocked the secret of the Jaffa. Oh, <laughs> A cross-section one... of the earth. Yeah, but this whole thing is just so nerdy and I just have to say that you know your love is real for Rob Sitch when you look at this and you still love him you know like it's just super nerd talking about viscosity like mate <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> one of the things I think came across really well in that yeah. segment was just how daggy everything was in the early 90s i mean the big science projection you know it's with an overhead mm. projector on a screen <laughs> and the guy's holding it up himself at the end of the exhibit exhibit it's just like i guess everything was like this back then well but school was like that you know we, we had a powerpoint when i was at school teachers would would literally have an overhead projector with those clear slides that they would write on with a pen yeah you know? If you had my teacher, he actually um, spat on a tissue and wiped it off. Oh, actually had someone like that. (laughs) And it's probably a bit young, but overhead projectors at schools, right? Yeah. And and they would show like physical reels of film in class as well onto screens on on actual real film projectors. That was was how this was before the internet, you know. Um, I've got got a bit of a, I, I don't know if this... This is something that someone told me years ago. They they attended a science fiction convention in the early nineties in Melbourne and the late show crashed it and, and sort of I think they they were recording one of these postcard segments, but they obviously didn't get very much good material, so they never aired it. But if anyone's got any info on that, I'd I'd love to know more. Yeah, shoot us an email, champagne late show at gmail.com or Twitter, T L S Champagne, by the way. So straight after the postcards from the science show, we have Tony doing a bit of stand-up, which tend to be a little bit of filler as well. I enjoyed this. I, I liked the reference to um, Senator Robert Ray bursting naked out of a cake. And uh, what is? I have to say that I, I forgot who Senator Robert Ray was. And, and I was reminded by Wikipedia that he was a minister in the Hawke government who was quite a large gentleman. So I suppose the idea of him bursting naked from a cake been quite amusing in the early <laughs> well, didn't Tony say somewhere along the line that he basically used these segments as a way to practice his stand-up like he wasn't was he doing a lot of stand-up before the late show I don't know 
Yeah, he was. I, I was too young to go and see him, but he and Mick kind of really got the Prince Patrick Hotel uh, comedy nights booming, you know, because they were the the big acts and also the Gershwin room down at the ESPY in St Kilda. So, yeah, 91 was their big year stand-up. Well, he with his stand-up for this, he was talking about how the Sydney's bid for the 2000 Olympics was in a bit of strife and Melbourne's 1996 bid was a bit shoddy and that's where he also came up with the, his poem. Does anyone remember the poem for the Olympics? I just got <laughs> Kiss the Olympics. You got the Olympics. Kiss them. Kiss the Olympics. Come on. Go on then. Go on, kiss it. I'm wondering if this was inspired by Gis a Job, which was the, the sort of it's a British program in the um, early 80s about unemployment. And there's a there's a famous line, you know, Gis a Job. I, d- I don't know whether that, that maybe was the, the inspiration for that. but Knowing Tony watching a lot of British comedy shows and dramas, definitely that, I'd say that would have been inspired. But hey, I can be proven wrong. Tony, let us know. Hint, hint. Yeah, the, it was, um, the program was called Boys from the Black Stuff and there was a famous scene. It's a British drama from the early 80s about unemployment in the Thatcher era. And there's a famous line where the character just follows someone across a, a cricket green and says, give us a job, come on, give us one, like this. So, right. yeah. Well, after Tony's stand-up was another instalment of the olden days, episode two, Maltreated Millinery. I, l- I think this is the best episode. Yeah. yeah. I love this. You've got, you've got the hat bashing, you've got naughty sleeve, naughty sleeve. Yeah. Yeah, it's got the most classic lines in it. Yeah, mm. I think that's what the first episode was lacking yeah. was Governor Frontbottom. Like, obviously, you needed the introduction episode, which is great. Yeah, he meets Alden for the first time. Frontbottom meets Alden. Who's <laughs> <laughs> looking through the round window now? Yeah, who's looking through the round window? So great. And the and bad, bad hat, water sleeve. Yes. Mm. And there's a... A dog called Charlie as well, which um which becomes a thing later in the late show. Well, there was the missing dog with John. Yeah. Yeah. When he, they asked John, Mr. Patmore Juice, it's like, have you seen the dog? I guess, ah, he'll be hanging around somewhere. I'm kind of wondering what that thing actually was. I mean, obviously it wasn't a dog in, in Rush, but... Uh... It was it looks like a leg of, leg of like, yeah. beef or something, doesn't it? Would have been Some colonial shit. There you go. <laughs> Some olden days food. <laughs> Just some meat. <laughs> I remember at the time, not sort you know, the olden days was great, but then later on realizing how much work it must have been to put that together. It's just for for a show at the time that just seemed to be, you know, kind of slapdash, you know, they were doing a whole lot of pissy, piss weed comedy, to realise that, you know, they're behind the scenes there's all this work. They're putting, you know, must have been weeks worth of stuff just to prepare the olden days really sort of was an eye-opener that these guys weren't just you know rocking up at the ABC studios on a Saturday afternoon and mucking around for a few hours they were really putting in the effort yeah the results were amazing that you know that's why they released it on VHS and then ultimately DVD because these became much loved classics of the show didn't they outsell like the late show the barge ass and olden days videos Oh, I hope mm-hmm. not. That makes me sad. Hmm. Ooh, really? Don't quote me on it. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest. I mean, it, it'd be an easier sell 
instead of going, here's, you know, an hour's worth of dubbed black and white television, rather than here's a bunch of sketches that you might have already seen. <laughs> not, not to comment on the quality either way, but I, I think, yeah, the olden days, and especially Barjas, because Barjas was massive, and not just physically, um, <laughs> they would have been, you know, just easier things to sort of, easier, easier units to shift, as it were. After the olden days was muckraking Jason and Mick, and they were putting the spotlight or the magnifying glass on Cluedo Australia, the short-lived Channel 10 series. No, was it Channel 10 or Channel 9? Channel, Channel 9. Hosted by Ian McFadgen, of course, from the comedy company. They must have got in really quick on Cluedo. Didn't it only go a couple of weeks? Uh, I think it ran for a series. Like, it wasn't pulled off like they did with everything else on Channel 9. But I was a bit sad that they sunk the slipper into Cluedo because I loved it. <laughs> and actually, I think, fuck it, I don't care. I love Cluedo because where would you get those sort of hammy theatrics nowadays? You, the, no way would any TV station ever invest in a show like that ever again. They just make some reality crap. I'd much rather they go and make some weird little Cluedo program. <laughs> so much wasn't, better. Wasn't Cluedo like Ian McFadgen's big, you know, he staked everything on the success of Cluedo and that's why we don't hear about Ian McFadgen much these days. Yeah, and he's a little bit odd now. <laughs> I'll put that out of the bag. Have you actually <laughs> done any since The Wedge, which I think was like 2000 and and, and was one of Rebel Wilson's early outings. He semi-retired, oh, as far as I know, and because he was, and I'll admit, I actually went to his place a couple of years ago for an interview for another side project, and he was working at a hardware store, which is now defunct, but he's semi-retired doing paintings and script writing as well. And But it's more or less a lot of the B-grade stuff, if that makes sense, or really low-budget indie type things. But he's happy where he is, as far as I know. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, speaking, of, speaking of kind of murder mystery shows on television, there was a – people might remember um, the 2010 series Sleuth 101 hosted by Cal Wilson, which is very similar idea to Cluedo, but um, obviously a slightly different – it was in one episode of Bluey in 2019. It seems to be the kind of idea mm. that executives jump on every decade or so that, you know, we'll get people involved, people will really get into this, and then it goes to air and people do not get involved and are not. <laughs> well, I thought they mainly highlighted Cluedo because it was a free punching bag joke line for a Dado joke, really. Yeah, a number of Dado jokes. <laughs> Don't talk to me about the Dados. <laughs> Dado <laughs> there were some quite there were some other quite good jokes. Like, I quite enjoyed it when they cut to the Reverend Green and, and they said the Lord spoke and he said ham. I thought that was <laughs> um and it, it's always nice to see Joy Westmore who who played Mrs. White in Cluedo. She was Joyce in prisoner and also worked with Graham Kennedy and, and she she turns up in this sketch briefly. So Yeah, it had some real blue blood actors in it. Cause, yeah, uh, was it still a fan? <laughs> yeah, I have to say that I used to watch it every week and I enjoyed it at the time. So, and and it was a really good cast, actually. Yeah. Also, I love the way they use this as an excuse to go into the top five professors and Santo <laughs> gets to come out and do his nutty professor. 
which Yay. I think is the best nutty professor I've ever seen. <laughs> Hands down beats Sean McAuliffe's every time. More <laughs> Santo as Jerry Lewis. And you get to see it in Nutto Vision as well. I, I like Nutto Vision comes back a bit later as well. Well, the top five professors that they listed were Professor Julius Sumner Miller, the Cadbury and the Egg into the Bottle Guy. But why is it so? That's the one. The absent-minded professor, the nutty professor, the, the nanny and the professor. I don't get what I wrote there. Never mind. It was one of them. And, the nanny and the professor, yeah. yeah. And the Gilligan's Island professor. A lot of love for the Gilligan's Island professor. Yeah, but he never got them off the island, did he? So he wasn't that good a professor. Yeah, well. <laughs> if we're all done with muckraking, we have a quick little and bit bizarre seg into Rob doing Elton John, which sounded like a piss take of your song. Again, this was one of the things that really stuck out, stood out for me as something you would do early in the series where you would go to all this effort for something that was like a minute long, 90 seconds, and you just sort of think, you've only got so many hours in the day, you really need to, if you're going to dress up as Elton John, you need to get more than that out of it. Yeah, it's like a hangover from the radio maybe where it would have worked really well on radio but this one it's on telly and they have really put a lot of blood sweat and tears into that one minute or whatever it is it's very much like the first episode which was packed full of material again I reckon this episode is also packed full of material as well not all of it great I'm wondering if they're still in the mindset of like the degeneration, which was their last experience of like doing TV sketch. And, and the thing with the degeneration is they would have written all the material all in advance and then they would have gone and filmed it, you know, but with this, it it's every week and it's relentless and they've got to do an hour every week as opposed to, you know, six half hours per year with the degeneration. So, you know, they, as, as Tony says, they haven't quite learnt how to be really efficient in generating enough material to fill the time. So they're still learning. When you think about how much effort they've put in to, you know, get the Elton John look right, whereas, you know, later on in the series, you just slap a wig on Rob and get him to, you know, gurn and break character and you get so many more laughs out of that. Yeah, yeah. After Elton John, we have the news update, which is all about... Well, more sports, really. So you had the Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson who went missing in Barcelona and also Adelaide uh, trying to bid for the 1998 Commonwealth Games and that failed. Yeah, but it was, was, I remember this. It was really, really talked up a lot, mainly by the Adelaide advertiser who, of course, were gonna, always going to talk it up. And, yeah, Su- surprise, surprise. And then, you know, the dreadful, the dreadful news that we hadn't got it, you know, I can't remember who did get it in the end. Was it Malaysia or someone? I can't remember. It's the same with every Commonwealth game. Yeah, Malaysia won because they were also trying to work out, uh, well, they couldn't hold the Fat Blokes Marathon. A, a tri- triathlon. <laughs> which involved roo shooting, darts, betting, which Malaysia doesn't have. And their triathlon was, oh, and this is awkward, the Hanging Australian citizen. Forcing the foreign <laughs> minister to suck up and abducting young children. Ooh. They Thanks. very much <laughs> they very much still had that sort of radio approach to news comedy as well, where it was like, as long as it's topical and you can make a quick throwaway gag, it doesn't matter if it's tasteless because you've moved on and everything's rolled on. 
Whereas when you see it on television, it just kind of lingers just long enough to be a little awkward. Mm. But not as awkward as the next news desk uh, sketch, I think. Oh, <laughs> God, that's a dark sketch. Yeah. Isn't it? That's so dark. Yeah, really dark subject matter. But I have to say, again, Rob, Tony and Santo look pretty hot as cops. So We should probably explain the, the, the news story that it was based on was... Um, this notion that um, Indigenous people trying to uh, suicide while being in custody were going to be charged for damage to bed sheets, which is absolute, which is absolute yeah. bullshit, personally. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. And I think it's sort of, they sort of get away with it today because they're, they're clearly on the right side of the issue. Yeah. But you just sort of think these days you would not be making those jokes about that issue. Yeah, there's 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 one there's one epithet that is used. I mean, again, to show that these cops are bastards. That I, I I'm not going to say it. And if I was writing that sort of a sketch, I wouldn't use those, that sort of language either. They use the the real racist terms that would have been used. In fact, they're probably quite quite mild versions of the real racist terms that would have been used in those contexts. Yeah. And it's very, it's shocking to hear that. It was always, I, I don't know if it was commonly thought, but I, I do remember talking to other people about comedy sort of in the early 90s and the mid 90s. And there was always a bit of weird tension about like with the DGEN and especially with the Late Show where they stood on some things because clearly they were, you know, young people on the right side of a lot of issues. But then there would be this sort of material that even back then people were like, just, I don't know, a little questioning. It always seemed a little odd that they were, you know, everyone young loved them and it was really embraced by, you know, everybody I know that this was a show for us. But you would occasionally get these gags coming through that felt just a little old, like something that people may not have otherwise done. I don't know, maybe it was just my peers thinking that, but... It did seem to be a thing that people would occasionally, you know, raise an eyebrow about the late show, especially the news desk. The news desk would often have jokes that people, at least that I knew, people would be sort of going, Oh, really? Oh, okay. And and you can you can sort of hear a bit of that tension in the audience with that sketch. Which uh, like again, considering the subject matter, I think it really should be played for a bit of tension and like a bit less for laughs. It's more like uh, the 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 cops are pretty much comedy caricatures, I suppose, to try and get the point across that uh, that yeah, it's that these are bad things and they shouldn't be happening. Again, it, it sort of felt to me like a, a a joke you could do on radio where you're not seeing it and it moves past quicker. And as long as you get the point. By the time people realise they're shocked, you've moved on, it's an ad break or what have you. But, yeah, on television, it just sort of, it, yeah, it lingered a little bit. But really, it, it needed to, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, look, I think what makes it tolerable today is that they're clearly on the right side of things. They're making fun of what needs to be made fun of. Well, then they followed up with the uh, water polo coach thing, which I found really funny. I love that Tony was yelling, Come on, you bastard, put in. <laughs> <laughs> right, trying to sound like somebody who's coached sport, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I don't know who it was, but someone was doing a very funny water polo sort of 
treading water and throwing their arm around in the air. I couldn't figure out which cast member that was, but it was spot on. Well, the next segment after the news desk was one that we think, or someone had mentioned last episode, that it might have been part of the pilot for the Channel 9 Late Late Show, which is Rob and Mick on top, for Shitscat on top of the fire building and doing a bungee jump. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was my theory that it was part of the the late late show pilot, which as we discovered at the start of this episode was actually nineteen ninety it was made. And I can provide some actual useful background for once and my and a useful contribution to date, in that that where they filmed that was the old CFA training ground in Richmond, which is across the road from the Victoria Gardens IKEA. Wow. <laughs> Um, it's been torn down now. There's, I think it's just flats there, but it's near the um, the Skipping Girl neon sign, if you know Melbourne and that particular thing. Um, but I know it because uh, Sean McAuliffe filmed a sketch there for the McAuliffe program. Yeah, what sketch, Tony? Oh, well, that would require me to have actually done my research rather than just remembered something while watching the episode. Fair enough. Um, I think it was some... Uh, Wayne Hope is in the sketch. <laughs> I remember <laughs> recognising the location and recognising it because there is a cinema in Victoria Gardens that I had to attend for work quite a lot and going, oh, that's where that CFA tower is. But, but yeah, if you... All, all, all if you I vaguely remember is that he might have been in a canoe going over the top, perhaps? That sounds... That sounds right. I, I, thought, I, I, I remember. vaguely remember, I'm, I'm madly trying to work out what I need to type into Google to try and find it. <laughs> I remember that sketch. Was, was it maybe in the title sequence from the Carliff program or, or possibly? I can't remember. That's yes, my useful contribution. A CFA training site. Excellent. Oh, it's definitely an early one because Tommy G's haircut is obscene. It's yeah. long. Okay, I think I found it. It's called I Bloody Dare You. <laughs> I remember that now. And yeah, Wayne, Wayne Hope is, is interviewing Francis Greenslade and he's on a kayak uh, about to go over. I'm just watching this thing on mute, but um, we'll probably tweet it to Facebook out a link so you can have a look at it. I, I, just rec- I recently, um, I mean, oh, actually, I'm in the middle of reading the, the Mad as Hell book of scripts, which came out last year. And there's a, there is a sketch in there. And, and it's a, it's basically a kind of parody of of like one of those prank shows and and someone turns up at this guy's house and it it says you know it turns out that the the guy that they've they've come to see is like a nazi war criminal and then and then it it becomes this kind of (laughs) bloody dare you thing where the nazi war criminal kayaks off this tower and dies or something is that is that the Uh, maybe it, 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 it might be as as i said i've i was only looking at this thing on mute so uh I'm not sure if he's a Nazi war criminal in this or not. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be hard to tell on mute, but that was definitely what was in the script. I will say just about Shit Scared that this is um, the first time I've noticed that some of those smacks on Mick's helmet really would have hurt him. Like they, there's some real inertia going into that hefty blow. <laughs> I just thought, oh, no, poor Mick. And then also this is one that ends with um, Tommy G also giving him a bit. <laughs> I think I think it might be unique in that regard. Maybe that's why he's standing there with his clenched fists for about a minute at the beginning of the sketch, just bracing himself for the blow. Oh, I was just going to say, that was a surprise to me. I really 
from my memories of shit scared Tommy, Tommy was sort of the hapless bystander rather than joining in on pummeling yeah. Mick. An earlier concept of Tommy G's character. But also I did notice again, um, and I, I do notice Tommy G more in the re-watchings because he was someone I sort of blanked out. <laughs> Very rude of me as a 16-year-old, but I didn't notice him as much, but I do now. And I think some of his microphone work in Shit Scared is hilarious like if you just have another pass at shit scared and you just focus on tommy you go what are you doing like it's really good quality after shit scared we have commercial crime stoppers with santo and mick yes i was about to say jason for some reason uh and so they got feedback for about the medieval fair from episode one but they think it's a Bit of a fraud because it didn't have he written on top of the letter. <laughs> and Margaret Dixon from Albury submits an all tools ad. I, I love the shot of, of the one where one of the younger bloke is in the wheelbarrow and they're all pushing him along and kind of singing along and dancing at the same time. <laughs> that that is just the nadir of that sketch for me. I love it. Yeah, it's so catchy. It's it's catchy. <laughs> it's it's a yeah. It's it's a good jingle, but uh, yeah, just very cheesily acted by those uh, four blokes in khaki shirts. <laughs> and I think uh, by the second season, when they had a uh, Sandhurst machinery, and that was um, sales went through the roof when John Farnham took that on. And <laughs> I think uh, all tools, maybe not so much, but I think it, it definitely gave, gave them some publicity. Yes, and which they lead into saying one in twenty Australians may suffer from psychiatric disorder. And they mostly appear in their own ad, and that's uh, when yes. we're oh, the Madonna baby. What are you doing? Can <laughs> Bruce has gone mad? Can uh, Bruce has gone mad? Can Bruce has gone mad? Can Bruce has gone mad? Can yeah. Bruce has gone completely mad? Sorry, just had to get that in. <laughs> 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 you had to get it out of your system. Yeah. Well, this was fairly late in the Ken Bruce saga because his twin sister Madonna took a while to come along, from what I remember of. You know, the Ken Bruce saga going through the 80s and 90s. Yeah, there was a Ken Bruce saga, wasn't there? It was like he was, you know, he was going under, he needed help. So, so he was recruiting assistants. The twin sister Madonna was like, and then there was another relative at some point towards the end. I dimly recalled some other, like a third party coming in, taking over after Madonna had failed to lift sales or whatever. I went into his store a couple of times on Chapel Street and I'm impressed that he had the money to make ads because it really just seemed like a shed full of white goods. Oh, and they were shit white goods too. They were re- um, reconditioned. So it basically yeah. was just a terrible op shop. And yeah, no, was, <laughs> I don't know how he got those ads on telly. And yeah, it's like new uh, secondhand furniture. <laughs> That's what it says. And it was like... In, you know, this inner city part of Melbourne, but it was this just like, I don't think it had a dirt floor, but it felt like it should have. It was just concrete. I remember it. <laughs> so weird that it was on Chapel Street, you know, the height of Melbourne fashion. <laughs> and you've got Ken Bruce going mad on the corner there. Well, it was down on the dodgy end, but yeah, it was just, I don't know. I mean, the Late Show, I guess, really sort of helped put him over the top, but just so many ads on late night television for so long for just this dodgy furniture where white goods shed. One thing I really love about this um, part of commercial crime stoppers is you really start to see the late show using audience participation, like starting to get a little bit more interactive. 
And I think that's where it really hit its stride because people were like, oh, yeah, I love that. And they'd send in their letters and stuff and and the guys would use it and, and um, you know, put put to air some of these great finds. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've banged on a bit about them doing their radio stuff before, but I really think being on radio really helped them as far as interacting with the audience and sort of bringing the audience along with them went. They really had that sense of, you know, getting people to send things in, getting people to connect with them, and then sort of giving back as well that made the audience feel like they owned the show. They were part of it. The only other thing is, who is the Hong Kong tailor at the end? What's that an ad for? Well, Hong Kong tailors, I think, are they still a thing? Yeah, they... they it's a bit hard to tell in these global, you know, order it from Amazon Times, I suppose. Mm. I know some food. places in Savile Row actually get this. They send their stuff to Hong Kong and then they, they get them all, the bases of them sewed there, the suits, and then they get sold in, in Savile Row. But they, you know, <laughs> they get outsourced to Hong well, Kong. What they used to do, and I know in Melbourne, was like the Hong Kong tailor would fly out be in a hotel room for like two days and people would go there, get measured for their shoots, shoots, suits and shirts and all that sort of stuff. And then the tailor would fly back to Hong Kong, get it made up and send it back out here. I, I remember seeing an ad for that in, in Private Eye actually. And, they, and the, again, the Hong Kong tailor would come to London and, um, and exactly the same thing. But, but it used to be a thing if you were going through Hong Kong you could go and get a suit very cheaply made and, and they would actually sew it together and it would be ready for you by the time you left Hong Kong. So you could get it within days. So the idea of getting a really cheap suit that was good quality very quickly was a thing that travellers did back in the 70s and, and 80s. I think people tend to do it in Vietnam now, Hoi An and places like that, if anyone ever gets to travel, that is. <laughs> Speaking of really dodgy things coming from overseas you have tom and jane with their mail order thing with their mail order items and one of them which they were trying to demonstrate was the giant seven foot tv projector magnifier for all low price of 27 dollars. all i was going to say was that i remembered from this sketch was that they used the clip of the falling light for like the opening credits for i don't know if both seasons but I always wondered where it came from because I didn't see this episode first time around. Yeah, that, that's actually quite a good gag. I think that's probably the best gag in the entire sketch, really, is the, the light coming I love out. that they use so many explosions. Like, they've got no problem with just exploding something. I love that. <laughs> Can we lower the lights? And, yeah, so the spotlight just drops down from the ceiling. And then it's slow, slowly down and then slowly back up again. Oh, that's a joke from the lighting department. Yeah, no health and safety aspects considered. <laughs> all... Aaron Beaucaire at work there, I imagine. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say in my new idea magazine, I've also got um, an ad about the um, anti-ladder stocking solution, which uh, Jane was talking about, uh, the fact that they like to buy stuff on mail order and all these little weird little things. So this one's about the no-run um, solution that you actually paint onto your stockings and you can stop them from laddering. I think um, the same effect can be done with a bit of nail polish these days. But anyway, this is only $19.95. Makes, using no run makes hosiery last up to six times longer. Now there's no need to worry with a revolutionary new Australian product. So sparkle coating systems proprietary limited. Sparkle coating systems, wow. Mm. 
so there's there's some real gems in this magazine crappy products would just be in magazines in the 80s and and well before that you know before the internet again Mm. yeah they've got more great ideas by mail in this issue including miracle wipers never buy another wiper blade for the entire life of your car you can also remove hair in seconds with this three easy steps sounds like an internet ad nowadays and um, a venetian blind vacuum brush (laughs) yeah the niche product. Lots of fun things and new idea. So th- this this giant screen TV projector thing, I've like I've I've never seen it before. This late show sketch. So as far as I can tell, they just received what was essentially a big lens that you're meant to put over your TV, and it's meant to <laughs> it's like something like, you project get in a show what's bag. on the TV, but obviously in reverse onto a wall or something. Yeah, that seemed to be the concept, but it, it sort of blatantly didn't work, did it? No. I just, yeah. I, 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 I would fail to see how it would work in the first <laughs> place. Because like, you would have to have a pretty bright TV in order for it to throw something through the lens and onto a seven-foot wall. I don't think it quite works. <laughs> I think how it works is that the people get your money for it and they keep your money, and that's how it works. <laughs> Did work in a sense, though. Chunky deal, my yeah, friend. But... Straight after the magnifying TV glass, Graham and the Colonel. Hey, yeah. Hey. And the hair was looked after by Kilties of Canberra. So there's another Bill Kilties. <laughs> I, I like this because there's a lot of references, like, you know, they, they're talking about the Barcelona Olympics and, you know, what what, on a, what the Sydney Olympics would do if it got them, which, of course, it, Sydney eventually did. But there's, there's loads of references to, to sort of, you know, people and things that were famous at the time but probably not so much now so like the deltones who who i remember there being ads on tv for the deltones various gigs and and records and they would i think the deltones used to go on hey hey it's saturday if i recall as well and col elliott was another singer who was quite popular and the holden precision driving team do they even exist anymore holden doesn't exist anymore yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they they kind of exist, uh, but usually at this time of year, usually we would have the royal show happening in Adelaide. But obviously, like everything else, it's not happening this year. But usually, we would have a precision driving team of some sort. I think they're Isuzu D Max trucks now. Yeah. So I think I think they're they're still existing in some form. Yeah, even if Holden. Yeah, in the main arena before the fireworks. Yay, let's all go to the show. It's nice to know that the Royal Melbourne show was as crappy as the Royal Adelaide show. (laughs) Yeah. I was crap. I also liked that um, (laughs) Santo wanted the Olympic oath said in limerick form. Like (laughs) Billy Graham. (laughs) (laughs) So I haven't seen Graham and the Colonel for, oh God, I don't know, two decades now at this point. But watching him again, it was really like this was they were really what the late show was to me. It was that kind of pissy character stuff that they would do where they just kind of would muck around and they didn't care, you know, if things weren't quite going to plan as long as, you know, they were getting laughs. And it really, this at the end really sort of sealed it off and went, oh yeah, this is, this is what the late show is going to become, this kind of stuff. Yeah, they're starting to get the feel for the live audience and starting to play off the live audience and, and understand how they can you know, just sort of break character and, and do silly jokes to get laughs and how that's funnier than what they've actually written down. And you can sort of mm. see it 
gradually evolving into what it ultimately became. Yeah, they really are genuinely we are, having fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we also get to see our first uh, big prop. Yeah, oh, I yes. love the venue With, party uh, hat. <laughs> yeah, Bert, yeah what big, makes it? Big, huge, huge party hat, and then they, they and followed then the up with, uh, yeah, with a picture of a tiny, <laughs> tiny hat, hat on Bert Newton's head. head. Yeah. It's so funny face. all those jokes about Bert Newton's head. Like I had no concept of him having a big head until they started talking about it. <laughs> but he's a big man. Jokes in early 90s comedy about the size of Bert Newton's head, though, in, in the way that about five years ago there were a whole bunch of jokes about bin chickens. You know, there were just these kind of phases <laughs> of jokes that Australian comedy goes through. And in early 90s, you would get Bert Newton's head being big. Was Bert yeah. Newton even on television then? Like, yeah. did he have a regular he was doing uh, new faces, I think, in 92, wasn't he? Oh, okay. But and then there was the, when um, Mick turned up with his in his undies. Yeah. On the they couch. do a Good Morning Australia, which actually is a really good show. Yeah, Good Morning Australia actually started in 93. So, yeah, he would have been doing new faces in 92. Oh, no, hang on. Hang on. I, I've got the wrong information here. No, it, it Good Morning Australia started 20th of January 1992. So there you go. As part of the Olympics, the Colonel wanted to be in the equestrian team, but his draft horse, Spud, would have been part of that if they could, they could get the e barrels in. Oh yeah, and there was I what, noted that there was no mention of Doublecoat Supreme. He must have come. Yeah. He must have come no, later. Yeah, that yeah. was disappointing. And a big shout out to Sub Zero actually, who died this week. He was a lovely horse. I remember seeing him at the Cup a couple of times in the nineties. She I called him a he, but it was a she. I think. When you say you saw her at the Cup, was she just like in the crowd? Yeah, she was a. I guess, I think they do this with mares. They calm other racehorses down. And so she was like a patrol horse. I don't know. But, yeah, they would (laughs) take them out to the gate. I fucking know nothing about racing. I should just say this. But but she was a celebrity. So then after she'd done that job, she'd come back and, you know, she'd be nice to the crowd. It was, she was a really lovely racehorse. Was Sub-Zero named after the the Alco Pop Sub-Zero, which again was... I've got some terrible memories of (laughs) Sub-Zero. I'd like Sub-Zero because it was part of Mortal Kombat. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Well, that alcoholic drink got taken off the market because it was actually ripping out people's stomach lining. It was... (laughs) The worst drink. It was. It looked like water, didn't it? It was in those those bottles. Yeah, it was, yeah. and it was alcoholic lemon. Yeah. I remember it being quite strong, but I did drink a lot of it. Yeah, anyway. that was all I used to at university. I thought, oh, the nineties was when early like, drink. kids were drinking vanilla essence or whatever. There wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the kids were drinking anything they could get their hands on in the nineties. Yeah. Two, two dogs alcoholic lemonade. Oh god, I remember two dogs. We should move on before I before I am sick. All right, now we've got the closing credits. Uh, worst album covers. Yes. Yeah, and they was this all um, like subtext? Was it because I know they say, oh, shout out to our big fan Ross Warnicky in this, and were all <laughs> yeah. the other people that they shouted out to other critics? I have no idea. Well, I heard I, I dimly remember something that like. The first couple of times they did this, Tony just went down to the nearest cash converters or whatever and bought a bunch of bad albums 
and then people would later start sending them in. So I don't know if all of these were ones he picked up himself. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of audience participation very early. So, yeah, I'm sure they were ones they had lying around. Well, there was there was an Air Supply album uh, supplied by an audience member uh, in tonight's episode. So, Well, that's what we're wondering, whether that a, was real or whether that was staged. Here's the list of the albums. You had Tony presenting Wendell. Uh, there was Jane with Joe Hashem from number 96 and... Jason presented Yuri Geller with the album kind of bent and wonky. And Jason's actually there this time, as opposed to last episode, which I didn't even notice. Yeah, he's remembered to turn up. (laughs) Tom presented Neil Diamond Hot August Night, mainly because he looked like he was holding an erection. (laughs) Uh, Mick had James Pegler for The Good Times. Tony had the Ross Warnicky submitted album. (laughs) Sorry, I did quotation marks. I forgot this is a podcast. It's not <laughs> uh, Jake Arthur Burton, <laughs> Midnight Band. And the audience member supplied S by the whole thing started. Tony again once presented, uh, again, Max Whitehouse presenting, or dot, dot, presenting dot, 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 Max Whitehouse, which way. And Tom had the Rex Humbard family singers sing the family of God. Yeah, they were creepy. <laughs> Does anyone remember in the 80s or 90s, Yuri Geller going on 60 Minutes or A Current Affair or something, and he was like, you can bend forks and spoons just like me, and, and you had to kind of um, do some exercise with him. And, and I was a little kid at the time, and I remember trying to bend a spoon by watching well, He was revealed TV. to be a complete fraud. You remember that? <laughs> oh, no, this is ridiculous. All right, I was just going to say, there's the famous footage of um, James Randi, the sceptic, going on the Don Lane show and debunking Yuri Geller, which is on the Don Lane show DVDs, if you've got those, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> From they have, like, a hidden that, match or something. The, supposedly the trick was just you got a metal spoon, and like quite a cheap one, and you rubbed it a lot. And because it was cheap, the friction from your fingers would melt it enough so that the weight of the spoon head would bend it. And supposedly this was a trick that, you know, anyone could do at home. But Yuri Geller made himself a, an international superstar by doing this really basic kind of trick. But he dressed it up with a whole bunch of kind of, you know, psychic babble and, and people bought into it. You know, he became a really big cult figure. Yeah, I was worked for a magazine back in the day and um, we were sent a publicity photo of Yuri Geller. This was before the internet, so we had to request photographs. And the envelope it came in said, do not bend which our art director thought was hilarious. And it was basically displayed on the wall for several years as this running joke. <laughs> so. <Hey>. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, after that, it was pretty much a wrap-up of the show with the closing compilation showing last week's episode of, of various clips. Yeah, yeah there's, um, I think there's some more of that footage which we think is from one of the pilots, Um Again, in the in the end sequence there, as well as stuff from previous. Games. I think I think some of the stuff might have also been from rehearsals because uh, I, I I haven't been anal retentive enough to try and compare the credits in the uh, sorry the footage in the credits um, to what actually went to air, but I've, like some of it just looks a bit different. Mm, yeah, definitely rehearsal stuff and pre-filmed stuff. Yeah, there may be some you know some of the segments like the the science fiction one you mentioned as well that they just never were able to use. Now, uh, so speaking of the, the credits, um, uh, there's a whole bunch of people that also appeared apart from 
you know, the usual seven people. I've got no idea who they are or where they were in. So, um, yeah, Maya Badley, Barry Barton, Brett Cartwright, Andrew Burns, Tony Schmidt. I don't know who you were or where you were, um, but uh, we do know who Nono Santo is. Yay. <laughs> that, um, and I've got no idea where he appeared either in, um, uh, in the episode. He wasn't the taxi driver, was he? In Graham and the Colonel. Uh, for some reason, that's what I thought, but I have nothing to back it up with. Oh. Yeah. have to have a carryover mystery. This can be it. The other one was Duran O'Brien. This will be where was not. This is how you get people coming back. Maybe. I mean, some of these people would presumably have been the people in the various Olympic sketches where they were showing the different events because they had a bunch of people in the background there, didn't they? Yeah. Hey, Lisa, where are the measly bats? Oh, piss off. Well, there, there you go. If, if, if you're one of those people and you feel like getting in touch with us. Our contact email is champagnelateshow at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter, which is at TLS Champagne and on Facebook, which is simply The Late Show. Not the one with Stephen Colbert. It's the one that's got, at the moment, Rob doing the champagne comedy icon on the profile picture. So that's pretty much yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so that wraps up really episode two, season one of The Late Show. And also episode two of this podcast. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you, everyone who's been part of this. Alison, Daniel, Kim, Prue, Tony. And yeah, it's been another fantastic chat, that's for sure. And thanks to you as well, Matt. Thanks, yeah, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. And for oh, all this has been fun. Oh, yeah. And hey, apparently our podcast is so good, it rated one step behind Kennedy Malloy. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> Borrow the world. <laughs> <laughs> we'll beat Joe Rogan one day, whoever the hell that is. Oh, he's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that wraps up this episode. And next fortnight, yes, we record this once a fortnight, I have a special guest, and that is Spencer Housen, who is a former ABC presenter. He was oh. on ABC Radio in Brisbane. And Brisbane Radio Royalty. Yes. So he's been in radio for 25 odd years. So he'll be joining us for episode three and he'll give us a complete rundown and his point of view of everything. And fingers crossed, we might have a prize for a listener. So wow. there's some sizzle. <laughs> The only way you can win it is to listen to the whole episode. Oh, yeah. All two hours of it, and you cannot skip it. Yeah. And there'll, be, there'll be, a be a quiz. There'll be a quiz. Yes. And the prize is Wendell's album. So look out. The second prize, two Wendell albums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And yeah, please reach out to us in any of the forms which I've already previously mentioned. You can just rewind it and have a listen again. So yeah, thank you very much. This is the Champagne Comedy Podcast. I'm Matthew. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. ChampagneComedy.com Thank you for listening to the Champagne Comedy Podcast, created by fans for the fans. For more information on this podcast, please visit ChampagneComedy.com. Produced by Matt Fulton Productions. MattFulton.com.au